So Jacob says, go to Egypt, get some food. Now what he doesn't know, of course, is that the reason that there is food in Egypt is because of Joseph, this, the son he assumed had been dead for, I don't know, probably a decade or so. And it is true that one life was over for Joseph. Nothing about the life he had known uh, goes with him when he goes to Egypt. Nothing but the God and the the, of his ancestors and that covenant God has made with his ancestors. And God has plans for all of this. And those plans culminate in Joseph ruling in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Yeah, but it's been about a decade, maybe a little longer, since he was dragged off by slave traders. And he's been in... He's been second in command to Pharaoh for about eight years. Um, and you wonder, how much does he still think about home? Because when, when he was a slave and then when he was a prisoner, going home was not an option. And, and being Pharaoh's second in command uh, clearly had, he would have been busy, right? Had huge responsibility. But could he have made arrangements to visit? Could he have made arrangements to send a message that he was alive? Probably could have, but he doesn't. Because that life was over until it wasn't. Until suddenly there he is and there they are, his brothers. The last time he had seen these faces was the day they had handed him over to slave traders, like he was a possession, like an unwanted possession. They wanted to be rid of him and his dreams. But when they show up, it is those dreams that they fulfill. They prove those dreams prophetic as they come and bow before him. Now, the text says that the sight of them bowed low brings to mind to Joseph those dreams. Now, imagine, if you can, what that moment would be like for him. I imagine it was not the ego trip that those dreams had been initially, right? Uh, I suspect it would have been sort of deeply unsettling. Uh, both unsettling and somehow reassuring because evidence that God's hand had been in this the whole time. But we really don't know what goes through Joseph's mind. We do know this. He does not decide to reveal his identity at that point. On the contrary, what he does is he accuses his brothers of being spies, of being here to sort of case the joint. In fact, it will be a good deal of time before Joseph will reveal himself. I mean, if you open your Bible, let's just look at 42, all right? Go to 42. That's where Jacob sends them out, all right? So we go all the way there. Oh, by the time we get to 42, we're talking about a second journey. So he had sent them home once, uh, they, and they need more food because it's a long famine. So they come back. 
All right, so we go through all through 43. Then there's this whole business about a silver cup. We'll talk about that. That's 44, so we go through all that. And then for finally, it's 45, chapter 45, that uh, he reveals himself. And I was tempted, briefly, I was tempted to read all of that. Because you lose a lot by just summarizing it. And most of the attempts to summarize it say, well, what Joseph's doing here, uh, they put it in a positive light. They say what Joseph's doing is that he's testing his brothers. He's giving them an opportunity to demonstrate that they've changed, that they regret what they did to him. And that explains some of what Joseph does here. Maybe it even explains a good portion of it. But when you read it, it's, it's much more complicated. Um, it, it's sort of remarkable, because when you think about what's, how Joseph got into that position, I mean, he re- interprets uh, Pharaoh's dreams, and before, you know, like, just as he's reached the end of his interpretation, he already sort of launches into a course of action to address what these uh, dreams foretell. Does it without skipping a beat. It's sort of the job he's been preparing for his whole life. It is very different Joseph that we see in these chapters. Uh, it's not clear at all what he's up to, why he does what he does. You know, you read through these verses and you wonder, what, what's motivating your interactions with your brothers here? Is it, is it resentment? Or is it affection? Uh, you know, what happens is he tucks their money back into their grain sacks and, uh, so that uh, they go back and they discover not only do they have the food, but they have their money back. It, was that a dis- display of generosity or was that just a mess with their heads? Because it does. That's what it does. It messes with their heads. They're terrified. It's, it's sort of some form of psychological torture. So what is it? Is it affection? Is it manipulation? Is it aggression? Well, I think it's probably both. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a, a family, but and I, I know the foundation of a family of love, but I'll tell you what, the decoration is, is passive aggression and mixed messages. Families are complicated. Uh, so on the one hand, this story is coming together rather neatly. You have these dreams that are, we're, when we're introduced to Joseph, we're introduced to his dreams, and now we're finding those dreams fulfilled. <laughs> On the other hand, these chapters are messy. I mean, the man who could apparently uh, develop a fully formed plan to address a national crisis, a seven-year famine, is sort of all over the place when it comes to dealing with his own family. He seems vindictive and angry and generous and affectionate and sometimes simultaneously. Um, I just, I just finished Bruce Springsteen's memoir, Born to Run, and I laugh because both Jen and Arden have said they're so sick of me talking about Bruce Springsteen. Sorry, you can cover your ears. Uh, so, but Springsteen, what's amazing about Springsteen is he may not be the most technically gifted guitarist or singer, but when it comes to showing 40,000 people a good time, he, the boss is a master of his craft. He has worked tirelessly uh, at that. 
And, and you wonder, where does all that drive come from? Well, at least according to the, the boss's own reflections, part of that comes from his father, and not in a positive way. His father was this sort of dark, brooding presence who was diagnosed later in life as a paranoid schizophrenic. He said little, and what he did say was, was often critical of Bruce. And so when Bruce, you know, like, like a lot of kids in 1964, when he sees Ed Sullivan introduce the Beatles, his life changes, right? Rock and roll is going to get him the love and affection that he can't get from his father. Rock and roll is going to give him a reason to get out of Jersey, which, of course, never really does. But to run free, to be born to run, right? And that serves him well until his late 30s. He fall, but then he falls in love. He has a kid. And he realizes it's so much easier for him to connect with an arena full of people than it is to relate to his son. He's a bit, there's a point, he's a bit like Joseph, a master of the huge, a novice at the intimate, you know, rock and roll was this sort of grand fortress Bruce Springsteen built around himself. And when he had to step outside of it, he was sort of at a loss. And what you find here is that Joseph was a bit at a, at a loss. I mean, granted, in these chapters, he still holds all the cards. He is the puppet master pulling strings, issuing demands uh, and orders and threats. On the other hand, he's not all under control. He weeps. Uh, he has to excuse himself and come back. He does strange things. Anyway, what, what happens in these chapters is the, the, I get the sons, uh, they, they go out to get food, except Benjamin stays home, and then Joseph says, hey, look, unless you bring this other son, Benjamin, back, I'm going to believe you're spies. And he puts Simeon in jail until they do. And when they return home and tell their father, that this is the demand that Joseph has put, that, that this ruler has put on them. Uh, Jacob is deeply distressed. And you sense, when you read it, that Jacob, you know, even though he said Joseph was killed by a wild animal, you sense that he does not trust these boys. Uh, and so he does not want to send Benjamin, Joseph's uh, full brother, younger brother, does not want to send him with them. Uh, he's content to leave Simeon in jail. Uh, but the famine continues. And so they've got to go back. And so it's with great reluctance that he sends Benjamin with them. And when Joseph sees Benjamin, he has to leave the room, it says. He weeps, washes his face, and comes back. And by and large, they're treated well on this trip, except that what Joseph does is he stashes his own silver cup in Benjamin's sack. And then he sends, after they leave, he sends his own uh, guards or whatever to pursue them and bring them back for having stolen the cup. Now, what's going on there? I wonder if maybe uh, Joseph is trying to sort of take Benjamin away from his brothers, right? Uh, maybe he thinks this is how he's going to get them out. He'll send them off. But that is not what happens. What happens when, when 
Joseph accuses uh, Benjamin of stealing the cup, is that Judah steps up. And his speech is sort of heartbreaking because he's broken. It starts out by saying, what can we say to my Lord? What can we say? And then he actually has quite a bit to say. He explains this whole, tells the whole story about why Benjamin is so precious to their father because he lost another, his brother. And, and he says, you know, if we go back without him, it, it's going to kill him. It's going to kill him. That then brings us to our reading this morning. All right, so uh, chapter 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were unable to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. You know, with these verses, the book of Genesis really reaches its kind of emotional crescendo. You know, there are things of interest that occur after this, but as far as the narrative goes, here's where it, it peaks. Um, Pharaoh gets wind of what's happening, and so he invites the family, he gives them land so that they can all come down and live there while during this the famine. Uh, but Jacob insists, look, when I die, still bury me in, in Canaan. And sure, that's great. But the family stays there. And of course, if you know the book of Exodus, by the time that book opens, the, uh, the nation of Israel, well, the, the, tri, the, the patriarchs here have created a nation, and that nation is enslaved by Egypt. Um, however, at this point, they're still guests. Then they become slaves. But, but let's, let's return to that moment captured in our text. The man that is overseeing this massive public works project is undone by what his brother Judah has to say. He cannot hide behind the mask of authority anymore. I am your brother. Now, I suspect that none of us have had siblings that sold us into slavery or tried to pass us off as dead to our parents. But, you know, we all, we all have things we need to forgive our families for. That is as true of the best families as it is in the worst. It's just the nature of the beast. Families are messy. Families are complicated. And I don't think our passage is here to provide a model 
for how, what forgiving in a family looks like. It's not a model for what forgiving in general looks like because there's no sort of five-step process. If there is anything in this story to, to take in our own efforts to forgive our families, forgive others, forgive ourselves, it's this. It sure helps to know that God is in the midst of it. More specifically, it certainly helps to see the ways in which actions that were taken that hurt and to harm proved to bring about some good and healing. And that can happen. Sometimes the best things that happen to us happen to us because, came, came about because of some of the bad things that happened to us. And we don't claim that God caused those bad things, so God didn't cause those wounds, but certainly can be a place where we find evidence of God operating. And, and, and in those times, we can speak with Joseph that what, what was intended for evil brought about good. You know, that, that can happen, and it helps in being able to let go and to forgive. But what might provide even more help and knowing how to forgive is another story that figures into our worship today. And it's a story with remarkable parallels to this one. After all, Joseph is the beloved son amidst 12 brothers, the patriarchs of the tribes of Israel. Jesus is a son of Joseph, And at his baptism, God declares him God's beloved son with whom he is well pleased. So another favored son. And he gathers 12 disciples, who, of course, represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph is sold by his brothers and given over to the most powerful nation known at the time, Egypt. Jesus is sold out by a disciple and given over to the most powerful nation at the time, Rome. Joseph is thought to have been killed. Jesus is killed. And in a dramatic turn, Joseph ascends to become ruler over Egypt, sitting at the right hand of Pharaoh. And in a dramatic turn, Jesus resurrects and ascends to become the ruler of heaven and earth, seated at the right hand of the Father. Things that were intended for evil, God uses for good. And Ascension Day, which again, technically was last Thursday, it's this overlooked holiday. But it is, it's vital. It's vital to our understanding of the gospel, vital to our understanding of the faith. And it it is the basis for believing that what happened on Easter does not just start and end with Jesus. That it is just the beginning. Why? Because the one who resurrected is now the one who reigns over all things. He ascended to the throne. So it's not a holiday to be overlooked. It is vital. And among other things, it is vital for understanding our own attempts at forgiving. It's how we can know that God is in the midst of that messy process. After all, when you are wronged, When something is taken from you that is rightfully yours, 
whether that's something as tangible like money or intangible like your sense of security or your self-worth, when that's taken, the person or persons who take it, they owe you something. That is owed to you. And so often when we forgive, what we do is we act as though that didn't happen, right? We think it's our job to claim that what was taken was no big deal. We're fine. But that's, that's not forgiving. That's, that's an act of denial. Uh, when we forgive, what we're saying is, there is a debt, and I'm going to live with that debt. I will live without you repaying that debt. It's a little bit of, like, it's a little bit like death. It's a letting go. And that is what makes it so difficult sometimes. That's what prompts one of the disciples to ask, how often are we to forgive? How many of these little deaths do we have to undergo before we say enough is enough, I'm going to take what's mine? I am owed. Ascension Day proclaims that the one sitting on the throne of heaven is a beloved son who deserved all things because all things were created through him. And in him, all things are held together. And yet we stripped him naked, nailed him to a cross, tried to take everything from him. And he forgives. But he does not live with a debt. He does, not have to, he does not live with a void that goes unfilled. No. He lives eternally. Whatever void there was is now filled with glory. That is the story. He's a king. The king is, so the king is not unfamiliar with the messiness of forgiveness. He's not unaware of how it can feel like death. Whether you're seeking to forgive others or forgive yourselves, it is not easy. It is a cross. The king knows this. But because he's king, he assures us that it does not end at the cross, that the end is glory. Where we had known death, he brings eternal life. So, so this concludes our investigation of Genesis. Investigation we began way back the second Sunday in October. And that Genesis, what's remarkable about Genesis is it begins with the beginning, but it ends here with a story that points us to the ending. The day we are all gathered around the king who declares, I am your brother. We hear in Jesus in Genesis, in the Bible's first book, echoes of a vision described in the Bible's last book. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. 
for the first things have passed away. I am making all things new. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.